Welcome back to the War on Weakness podcast. In today's podcast, we're going to do things a little different. Friend of mine and friend of the podcast, Steve Wittrickish is going to talk to you about Vimy Ridge, being that it is one day from Remembrance Day when this is recorded, and he's going to talk to you about the Battle of Vimy Ridge and how it redefined Canada as a nation. Vimy Ridge was in World War One. it was in France, and it put Canada on the map as its own independent country. So, without further ado, I bring to you this podcast, and I will comment at the end. I think there's a couple things I would like to talk about briefly, but I don't want to delay you hearing this, and I don't want to spin it anyway before it begins. So, listen, absorb, and enjoy, and we'll talk to you in a bit. In 2015, I presented at an, at an event a story from Canadian history to about 200 workers. And it went better than expected, and I'm going to portray those tidings here again. Most people know the name, but few know the story. It is the attack on Vimy Ridge, which occurred 104 years ago, Easter Monday, April 9th, 1917. The generation of our grandparents and great-grandparents. My goal here is with the Remembrance Day around the corner. My goal is to inspire you instill some pride and maybe cause you to think a little bit differently about your life. My objective is not to romanticize war, but to remember and honor the men who fought. Vimy Ridge was just that. It was a geographic ridge on the landscape of France. It was the greatest fortress of German defenses on the Western Front. By those that saw it on the battlefield, they described it as a huge whale back of a ridge. It was seven miles long, but four miles was what mattered. It rose 400 to almost 500 feet of elevation gain above the plain, and it anchored the German defenses. It anchored the German lines, and from the crest, they had an uninterrupted view of the plains in front of them. I would imagine it's similar to size and perspective of uh, Mount Joy, the escarpment southwest of Lloydminster. It was protected, and it was a fortress, by three parallel lines of defensive trenches, up to eight feet deep, by rolls of barbed wire with five-inch barbs, and it was 30 feet deep and tall and high. It was protected by concrete bunkers with machine gun nests in there, snipers in artillery craters, spy planes, mines, thick grueling mud, and then the major artillery about eight miles behind the front. The most dangerous tack in warfare is a frontal assault on a secured position. In World War I, British and French tactics came from, evolved really from the Victorian age cavalry charge, where you would 
hammer the enemy lines with a barrage of artillery and then advance in line to kill the supposedly stunned defenders. But that doesn't work on an entrenched enemy, protected by mines and barbed wire and machine gun nests and counter artillery. And the war quickly devolved into siege warfare and a stalemate with both sides digging in, costing huge losses of lives. Both the British and the French tied and tried and failed for two years, costing hundreds of thousands of lives, dead, wounded, or missing. The Germans believed Vimy Ridge was impregnable, and when the Canadians arrived in the late fall of 1916, they held up a sign that said, Welcome. Welcome, Canadians. Vimy was a battle, or a section of a greater battle, known as the Battle of Arras, and the goal for the Allies was to achieve a major great breakthrough on the Western Front. And Vimy was just one section of that, the four-mile important ridge of Vimy. The Canadian goal in this Battle of Arras, the Battle of Vimy Ridge, was to take it within one and a half hours, have it secured within five hours, using fewer than 50,000, or using 50,000 fewer men that France had lost at Vimy. It's very important to note that when Canada entered the war, uh, there was a Canadian politician named Sam Hughes who was just bombastic and belligerent, uh, but his one contribution was his absolute insistence that Canada would fight in the war as an independent nation and not be mixed in with the British. And now for the first time at Vimy, all five Canadian divisions would advance in line on the battlefield by themselves. Four assault divisions and one reserve division. To take the ridge, they would have to change the preparation and strategy that had so miserably failed the French and the British. Upon entering the war, the Canadians were really, they were viewed as a ragtag group of undisciplined colonials who drank way too much, who didn't care about their uniforms, who didn't salute officers. And I'd say not a whole lot has changed in the last hundred years when I look around my friends at Lloydminster here. They were like the bad news bears of the Allied forces, a tough group of volunteers. British High Command, on the other hand, was very aristocratic, and they viewed the private soldier as like serfs who should just take their orders cheerfully. The generals really never visited the front lines. They didn't experience the living conditions on the front. One week at a time on the front, the soldiers lived with rats, millions of rats, rice, lice everywhere. Their food consisted of canned beef, known as beef bully. They slept on mats in the mud with the mats on tops of corpses to keep them out of the mud. They made decisions based on maps, the German command, using pins marking positions of their corps, but not really ever experiencing what it was like up there. But the generals of the Canadian divisions, they were different and they changed that. And that was uh, Julian Bing, who was a British officer, and Arthur Curry from Victoria. And they took a different approach. They trusted their men. They trusted their men with the details of the attack. They expected them to take charge if an officer fell. 
General Curry insisted on meticulous preparation. The pace of the attack was rehearsed over and over until every soldier knew every detail. He would single out and question the most moronic looking individual on the platoon to ensure he knew all the details because he cared about his men. He visited the front. He hated casualties. He hated unnecessary casualties. He insisted on the care of the troops take precedent over his own personal comfort. And he made sure that the men had their daily ration of army rum, which is the one diversion that helped them get through kind of the tough living conditions that they put up with. The other thing that made Curry different is he understood why men fight. He put his men into platoons rather than mixed them up into large groups, changing daily or weekly. So platoons are just a small group, and the men would eat together, sleep together, work, play, and live together like a family, which has resulted in forming a brotherhood. And he knew, you know, he thought, what would cause a man to jump over the parapet and run towards enemy gunfire? It's not for patriotism. It wasn't for apple pie or the sweetheart at home. It was for that brother, that man that he was beside him, and he could not let him down. In planning the attack on Vinny, Vimy, General Curry wanted to know every detail of the German defenses, the locations of the guns, their munition stores, where the snipers were, where their artillery was, maps of the German, German trenches, their barbed wire, the effectiveness on shredding it. And to do this, he employed a guy from uh, Mooseman, Saskatchewan, named Andrew McNaughton, who took a scientific approach to counter-battery. For the location of guns, he used two techniques. The first called flash spotting, which is a technique of triangulation based on uh, muzzle flashes and using survey gear and telephones and a reporting system of lights back to headquarters, triangulating the position of the German guns based on their flashes. And they could pinpoint the, accuracy, uh, pinpoint the location to an accuracy of five yards. The other technique was called sound ranging, which is more complex. And uh, how it works is when an enemy gun would open fire, would fire miles away from the front, a sequence of events would take place. A man would be uh, at a listening post out in no man's land, which is the, the, uh, the, the place between the two uh, opposing trenches. And he'd press a, a key activating a recorder at the headquarters and a series of microphones placed all over the front would pick up the sound of the shell as it traveled. And from the time intervals between the microphones and the sound waves generated by the exploding shell, McNaughton's team could locate not only the gun's position to within 25 yards, but also its type, its caliber, and the target. Other things that Curry uh, did to uh, know every detail of the German defenses was uh, they would go on trench raids at night where they would capture prisoners and interrogate them. They had to understand how to obliterate the barbed wire. They would use big air balloon observation. McNaughton himself would fly up there, you know, under the danger of enemy fire, enemy artillery. The use of spy planes and behind the lines, 
they were able to make a full-scale model of the German trenches, which they would use during their rehearsals. Accuracy of the Canadian guns also became real important, or was a, uh, a power leak, let's say, that needed to be solved. And again, Andrew McNaughton developed a system to measure the muzzle velocity of each gun individually. Because as guns shoot, the barrel gets hot, the barrels wear, and that affects the range. And a gun that's not calibrated properly can have a shell, maybe that's destined to shoot 8,000 yards, fall 300 yards short, and kill your own men under friendly fire. So by measuring the muzzle velocity of each individual gun, they could be calibrated as, as the gun shot and adjustments made so as to hit the target and not your own men. They also, McNaughton also considered the effects of barometric pressure and wind velocity on the gun range. For the barbed wire, current fuses weren't working and a new one that impacted or that exploded on impact was developed, which would shred the barbed wire, uh, whereas previous munitions had been ineffective. And in fact, the night before the attack, to be certain that the barbed wire would be shredded, he sent men out to Norman's land to verify that it had occurred. And in the greater Battle of Arras, the other Allied forces didn't do that and they were unsuccessful. The last thing in this preparation was the element of surprise. Everything had to be done in secret because, again, from the top of the crest, the Germans had plain view of, the, uh, of their enemy and, and everything going on for miles around. So everything had to be kept top secret. The Germans knew they were expecting a, pr a spring uh, offensive. They didn't know exactly when and where, but they had guesses. So everything had to be done at night, um, they had to build, they had to build um, roads with planks because of the mud. They had to build uh, underground subways and tunnels for carrying things to the forward front. They had to hide the movement of personnel and munitions. When you think about the number of people that were at Vimy and everything that had to take place, Vimy, with the number of Canadians there, was now the fourth largest city of Canada. And you think about, you know, getting water, telephone wires, power, rooms, sleeping mats, food, tens of thousands of horses. It was really a, a complex, a complex city. So the officers and the men, they knew every detail of the plan and they were expected to know it, except the date. They did not know the date. Easter Sunday was a glorious day of sunshine. But Easter Monday, April 9th, 1917, was a day of cold, of storm, and of sleep, sleet. Men were uh, crammed into the forward trenches under the, in the subways and underground rooms. They were tense with expectation. They stood in icy cold waters up to their knees anticipating the attack, sitting with their platoon, their brothers in silence. Most of the men were tipsy. Some were sloshed, completely drunk. Zero hour occurred at 5.30 a.m. when the Canadian guns opened up on the German defenses. And exactly 30 seconds later, 
the Canadian soldiers climbed out of the trenches and in advance. In a tactic known as the creeping virage, it was the result of the preparation rehearsal. Canadian guns would hammer the German positions for exactly three minutes and then lift and concentrate their fire another hundred yards further up. Canadian infantry would advance behind this curtain of artillery at the exact rate, the timed rate, of 100 yards for every three minutes in what became known as the Vimy Glide. So three minutes of artillery, after three minutes, lift the guns and target 100 yards further up with the infantry right behind it, advancing at a rate of 100 yards every three minutes. The barrage intensity was the largest the world had ever known, or maybe has ever known. 3,000 rounds per second. In the one and a half hours of the attack, over 6 million shells, ranging in size from machine gun fire to 280 pound howitzer shells from 12 miles back. It was so intense that it created an artificial wind driving the sleet into the face of the Germans. Those that were there described it like a huge lawnmower cutting over a field of grass or another like a moving curtain of Niagara only the instead of water a waterfall it was steel the sound was like 10,000 thunders and it could be heard faintly back in London as the barrage lifted the infantry was right being right behind captured the remaining stunned soldiers who had no time to recover from the barrage as the Canadians were right behind it. The best account of what I've heard it's like to be under a, a, an artillery account was described by Dan Carlin, who likened it to be tied, being tied to a fence post with your hands and feet tied to the fence post, a six and a half foot fence post, and with your head near the top and someone walking up with a sledgehammer a big sledgehammer and slamming the hedgehammer down, aiming at your head only to be stopped by the top of the post a millisecond before it hit your head. And then having that repeated over and over. As a result of the work of Andrew McNaughton, 80% of the counter artillery was taken out with pinpoint accuracy prior to the attack. The defensive barbed wire was shredded and the months and months of planning and preparation and rehearsal paid off in this new battle strategy. Within just a few hours, most of the ridge was secured by Canadians and they were having an early lunch eating the German provisions. From the top of the ridge, a private named Gad Terence Neal from Lloydminster, Saskatchewan surveyed the landscape from the top of Vimy and from the first time he and his fellows, his fellow Canadians, they had punched a hole in the, the over 400 mile line of German trenches. The French hadn't done it, the British hadn't done it, the Canadians had done it and in that great battle of Arras it was the only successful attack Unfortunately with, the unfortunately, with the Germans in full retreat, the hole could not be exploited. 
The barrage was so intense, the ground was so chewed up that the fleeing Germans could not be pursued any further than the Canadian artillery could reach and the Germans would then re-entrench beyond the range of the Canadian guns. But the ridge was held by the Canadians and would not be given up again for the rest of the war. As a result, when news came of the sweeping victory at, at Vimy, the world applauded. Headlines in London read, Canadians sweep Vimy Ridge. Canadian valor. The New York Times headline, well done Canada. In an anecdote, a French officer was in an English fac uh, cafe and he heard that Vimy had been taken to which he said, Vimy? No, c'est impossible. But then he was told that it was the Canadians who had done it. To which he said, Les Canadiens, oui, c'est possible. One of my objectives here is to honor those soldiers. War is sobering. It's important to note that the German men and the Canadian men, they respected each other despite public propaganda on both sides. German soldiers were told that Canadians would scalp them if they surrendered. Canadians thought, Canadians when they left here thought they were going on an adventure. But there was little hatred between the men because they shared those miserable conditions on both sides, sometimes only being separated by 75 yards across no man's land. They often helped each other with the wounded. They would sing to each other and even exchange Christmas presents. Canada entered this war as a junior partner of Britain and emerged as her equal. With a seat in the League of Nations, this ragtag volunteer civilian army who drank too much was now the most disciplined and fierce fighting corps in the world. The Germans had nicknamed them the shock troops. And Canada had come at age at last. She found her maturity not as British, not as American, but as Canadian. The Vimy Memorial commemorates the Battle of Vimy Ridge and the Canadian soldiers of World War I. It sits in a park, a 250-acre park given to Canada by France in France. 625,000 Canadians served in World War I. 173,000 were wounded, 60,000 died, and these were kids. Almost all were in their late teens or early 20s. More than half were from Western Canada. Western Canada was less than a quarter of the population of Canada, and over half the fighting force came from Western Canada. These were lumberjacks and miners, 
railroad workers and farmers, maybe our modern-day rig workers and welders. This was our grandparents and our great-grandparents' generation. And that is the story of Vimy Ridge. I hope you find it inspiring and humbling as it was for me. Thanks. So I don't want to sit here and take from that too much and spin it, but I do want to say something, and that is this podcast was built as the war on weakness. It was built for those who want to be strong, for those who want to stand up against the norm of being weak and staying safe and this podcast was built for us and if I say us and you understand what I mean and I'm not trying to be cryptic by saying that we're part of some club or trying to refer to this as any political race thing or anything like that that's not what I mean by us but when I say this podcast was made for us and that resonates with you, then you know what I mean when I say it. And what I heard there, when Steve talks about the fact that out of 600,000 plus Canadians, over half of them were in Western Canada, from Western Canada, when the population of this country is... It dwarfs, really, the population of Western Canada. By that, I mean the total population. And yet, we, Western Canadians, and I don't mean we as in I was there, obviously, but we Western Canadians are tough. We stand up when we need to. And that's case in point the Battle of Vimy Ridge and, and World War One, And I just want to say that if you're listening to this, realize that. Because chances are if you listen to this podcast, you're from Western Canada. We need to start rebuilding what we are. Because I've noticed us recently start to not be like us. We are not a fearful bunch. We are not a bunch that can be controlled. We're not a bunch that bows down to authority. We are a bunch of badass motherfuckers in Western Canada. And I hope this story resonates with you and helps you realize what we are.